You are now listening to the April 1st broadcast of Unity in Christ. This hour, we have the Fruit of Spirit sermon and equipping the saints. First, let's begin with the Fruit of Spirit. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. How are you? My name is Terry Park. For the next 13 weeks, we will talk about the fruit of the Spirit. The Apostle Paul wrote about the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Galatians teaches us that Christians who want to be righteous should have a proper relationship with God and can only have the proper relationship with God through the work of the Holy Spirit. One of the slogans of the Reformation, which happened 500 years ago, was justification by faith alone. Galatians chapter 2 verse 16 says, Know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but by faith in Jesus Christ. So we too have put our faith in Christ Jesus, that we may be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. We are not justified by work, but faith, but that doesn't mean that works are not necessary. In this regard, Galatians, which emphasizes justification by faith, provides us with a balanced perspective regarding our life and faith. If we focus only on faith, and think our life would be okay, regardless of how long we live, as long as we have faith, it will result in a desolate life, like a dry branch without fruits. People in the modern era who do not acknowledge the absolute truth become restless, and to ease their restlessness, they gravitate toward more supernatural things. However, we as believers are grounded in faith and live our lives bearing the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus said in John fifteen five, I am the vine, you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. That means as long as we who are branches are connected with Jesus, we will bear fruit. The secret of bearing fruit in life is to be connected with Jesus. Then how can we be connected with Jesus? We can start with consuming God's word. After all, Jesus is the Word, as shown in John chapter 1. As such, we should find Jesus, our Savior, in the Word of God. When we look to Jesus and remain in Him, with the work of the Holy Spirit, we can bear the fruit that will cause us to serve others with love as enumerated in Galatians chapter 5. Even though in Galatians 5.22 and 5.23, Several characteristics of the fruit are listed as love, joy, peace, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. They are referenced to the fruit in singular term. In other words, the fruit of the Spirit is actually one. It might be better to understand that one fruit of the Spirit has nine different characteristics. In the coming weeks, we will examine each characteristic of the fruit of the Spirit. Before we can be spirit-filled, our lives are like a dry branch without its fruit, living our lives according to fleshly behavior and seeking worldly desires. 
The only way that we can eliminate such worldly tendencies in our lives is to crucify our desires on the cross. The Apostle Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. What kind of life would you like to live? The life with the fruit of the Spirit? Or the dry branch thrown into the fire without the fruit? Next time, we will begin talking about the nine characteristics of the fruit of the Spirit so that we can be one step closer to being like Christ. Until then, goodbye!
Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor David Platt of Radical. I hope you have a blessed time with Pastor David. If you have a Bible and hope you or somebody around you does that you can look on with, let me invite you to open with me to Hebrews chapter 13. It's near the end of the Bible. Feel free to use the table of contents if you need to. Hebrews chapter 13. And as you're turning, I want to welcome those of you in Arlington and Moco and PW and Loudoun and online. It's good to be together around God's Word. Please forgive my voice a bit today. Along with about half of the DMV, I'm a bit under the weather right now. Uh, but I did not want to miss this Sunday in light of something we're going to do together a few minutes from now. We're in week 11 of 12 weeks in God's Word, seeing how every one of us needs a biblical church, how God has uniquely designed the church, unlike any other group or organization or gathering in the world, for our good. And how we will not experience, you will not, I will not experience our highest good without the church. And specifically without commitment to meaningful membership in a church. And to this point, we've seen 10 reasons why that's true, including some things that we know we need, like biblical prayer or biblical worship last week, to some things we may not at least instinctually think we need, like, do I need biblical giving? Do I need biblical accountability and discipline? Which leads to what we're going to look at today at how you need biblical leadership in your life. And I need biblical leadership in my life. We need a church where we are led by people according to the Bible. And I'm going to use we or you and I very intentionally throughout our time today because even as an elder or pastor in this church, I need other elders and pastors and leaders in this church in my life. But here's the deal. In our sinful nature, we don't think we need this. We think, I don't don't need to follow somebody else. I'm quite capable of leading my own life. And as a result, even when somebody is in a leadership position, we think, well, it doesn't mean I have to follow their leadership. But listen to the Bible. So this is God speaking to you and me about leaders in the church. And listen to what God says. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, of course you would choose this text to preach on as a leader in the church. Of course, you would find the verse in the Bible that says people are supposed to obey and submit to and make you happy. And you might even go so far as to think this is what's wrong in the church. 
leaders who crave this kind of power, wield this kind of influence. And you know, I'd actually agree with you. There are so many examples, more than any of us would like to count, of leaders craving power and wielding influence in unhelpful and even harmful ways, even in the church. We've all seen headlines of scandals and sexual abuse that absolutely are what is wrong with the church. But that's just it. Those headlines happen because those leaders are not leading biblically in the church. And the consequences of bad leadership in the church are personally devastating and far-reaching, which is why you and I need good leaders who lovingly, caringly, selflessly, and biblically lead us to experience life to the full in Jesus. And to be clear, it's not just Christians who need good leaders in the church. The world needs good leaders in the church. Some of you may be visiting today, you may be exploring Christianity. We are so glad you're here. And I trust that even if you're not a Christian, you hate and you're sickened by self-seeking, self-interested, self-promoting, and self-protecting leaders anywhere, and especially in the church. So let's think together then about what God is saying in his word here about how we need biblical leaders who we can obey and submit to. Knowing even these words, obey and submit, have such negative connotations. So let's pause for a moment and realize what the Bible is not saying here. The Bible is not promoting one absolute obedience to authoritarian leadership. The Bible never says to do whatever a demanding or dictatorial or even despotic leader in this world says to do. Acts chapter 5, verse 29, we must obey God rather than men. If anyone in any role of leadership is ever telling us to do that which is disobedient to God and his word, then we should not obey or submit to that leadership. So we know this is not God promoting absolute obedience to authoritarian leadership over him in this world, no. And second, the Bible is not promoting abuse of power all throughout the Old Testament. And we're reading this in Amos right now in our church's Bible reading plan. God rebukes leaders among his people for abusing their own power for their own gain, which is why when you get to the New Testament, what does God say to elders? First Peter chapter 5, verse 2, shepherd the flock that is of God that is among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. And Jesus made this clear all throughout the Gospels that power is a gift from God to be used to serve people. Mark chapter 10, verse 42, Jesus says, you know that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Indeed, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man, referring to himself, did not come to be served, but to serve 
and to give his life as a ransom for many. God makes very clear in his word that he is promoting service toward people, not abuse of power. And then, so follow this, the Bible is also not promoting here any kind of acknowledgement of inequality. Sometimes when we hear submission, we think inequality. Someone who submits is inferior to someone else who is superior. If two people are equal, we think, and there's no submission involved. This is where we need to guard ourselves, especially in our culture and our country, where we can so exalt freedom to the point that any kind of authority is seen as oppressive or evil, when that is not true. According to God, authority and accountability and submission to good leaders is a really good thing. Jesus himself, the Son of God, what we're about to celebrate at Christmas, takes on human flesh and submits to his Father. Not as I will, but as you will. Yet his submission does not strike in any way at his dignity. Or think of human relationships. When the Bible says that a child should obey their parents, that doesn't mean that a child is less dignified than their parents in any way. When God tells a wife in Ephesians chapter 5 to submit to a husband's loving, sacrificial leadership, that doesn't mean a wife is any less than her husband in any way. Now, obviously, there can be abuses of that authority in marriage or parenting and any other spheres, but that doesn't mean submission and authority in and of themselves are bad things. They are good things designed by God for our good. So how is this good for us? Why is God telling us to obey and submit to leaders in the church? And I I should just pause here for a moment to make sure we're on the same page when we're thinking about who leaders in the church are according to God. So what are the, who are the leaders that God is talking about here? And if you turn back just a few pages in your Bible, you'll come to 1 Timothy chapter 3, just a couple of pages back where you see two primary kinds of leaders in the church. Elders and deacons. And we're not going to spend exhaustive time in this text. We've studied before when we've talked about biblical leadership. So you can go back to those sermons if it'd be helpful. But let's just read real quickly 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 13 to make sure we're on the same page with the kinds of leaders God is talking about obeying and submitting to. And I think Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 will start to make a lot more sense. Follow along in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, the saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. And I should just point out that that word overseer there is used interchangeably in the New Testament with the word elder, what we commonly refer to as a pastor. So whenever you see one of these words in terms of leadership in the church, they're talking about the same group of people, elder, overseer, pastor. So 1 Timothy 3, 2 continues, therefore an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? 
He must not be a recent convert, or he may become puffed up with conceit and fall into the condemnation of the devil. Moreover, he must be well thought of by outsiders, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. So these are the qualifications. First Timothy 3 outlines for overseers or elders or pastors in the church. And you can see a similar list of qualifications in Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 9. And then in verse 9, the Bible talks about another group of leaders and their qualifications in the church. Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. And let them also be tested first. Let them serve as deacons if they prove themselves blameless. Their wives, likewise, must be dignified, not slanders, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their own households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. And I should point out that back up in verse 11, you probably see a note in your Bible when it says uh, there are Wives, likewise, there's a little note that probably takes you down in your Bible that says that could mean just wives or women, likewise, must be dignified, referring to women deacons. But to summarize, so these verses, 1 Timothy chapter 3, just, we just read, describe the two primary groups of leaders in the church. Elders who oversee the church, that's the group of leaders, specifically men entrusted with the authority to teach and care for and pastor, shepherd the church. And then deacons as men and women who lead out in different ministries across the church to meet specific needs. One example is Acts chapter 6 as they oversee the distribution of food to people in need. And these standards for leadership in 1 Timothy chapter 3 are clearly outlined by God. And we could talk a lot about these character qualifications, but for the most part, I think you'll notice they're really just expectations for every follower of Jesus, which is kind of the point. These are men and women who are supposed to lead in the church by example. In other words, the leaders we're obeying and submitting to should be people whose lives look like Jesus, which now leads us back. So Hebrews 13, we read verse 17 about obeying and submitting to leaders, but that's actually not the first time Hebrews 13 mentions leaders in the church. So go back there with me to Hebrews chapter 13 and look at verse 7. Ten verses before that, the author of Hebrews says, Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. I love this. The whole point of leadership in the church is to point people to Jesus Christ. So now it's starting to make sense. Why you and I need biblical leadership in the church. We need people who are doing, so watch this, two main things here. We need leaders who speak the word of God to us faithfully and continually. Remember your leaders who did what? Who spoke to you the word of God. And now it starts to make sense. If leaders in the church are speaking the word of God to you, then of course you should do what? Obey and submit to leaders. Because we are obeying and submitting to the word of God that they are speaking. Yes, we need people speaking the word of God to us like this. Faithfully, I emphasize 
And that word in light of the context around here in Hebrews chapter 13. Look right after this in Hebrews chapter 13, verse 9. The Bible says, do not let, be led away by diverse and strange teachings. And it goes into some specific examples of diverse and strange teachings at that, at that point that the people of God needed to avoid. We need leaders who are teaching God's word to us faithfully. Which is why, if you remember back in 1 Timothy chapter 3, what we just read, talking specifically about the role of elders and pastors and overseers, it says they must be able to teach. It's interesting, out of all the qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, all these qualifications are character qualifications except for this one, competency qualification. An elder, overseer, pastor must be able to teach God's word because their whole leadership in the church is contingent on speaking the word of God to others. So he must be stewarding that gift faithfully. Remember the very first week of this series when we saw our need for biblical preaching and teaching and we read 2 Timothy chapter 4? Remember these words from God to his people? He said, I charge you. Or actually, this is speaking directly to leaders. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with great patience, with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. In other words, you and I don't need leaders in the church who tell us what we want to hear. We need leaders in the church who are telling us what God says, regardless of whether we want to hear it. And if that means we are, uh, sorry, reproved or rebuked or exhorted, we need leaders who will teach God's word to us faithfully and continually. Deuteronomy chapter 6, which we looked at last week, you and I need leaders who God's word is just flowing from them all the time. whose lips and lives are overflowing with the word of God. And then, okay, so now back to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7. Remember your leaders who spoke to you the word of God, who do that faithfully and continually. And then we need leaders whose faith and way of life is worthy of imitation. So watch this. We need leaders who speak the word of God to us faithfully and continually, and we need leaders who imitate the life of Jesus helpfully and humbly. And we all know this, right? Think about just on the most general level. Think about people in your life who you're a better person just for being around that person. Don't you want people like that in your life? just make you better by being around them. Well, that's God's design for leadership in the church. That's why I put helpfully here. The whole picture there in Hebrews 13, 7 and 8 is we need people in our lives whose influence in our lives helps us look like Jesus, helps us look more to Jesus, which is why I also put humbly here, knowing that no leader in the church is perfect. Myself, first and foremost. 
And every leader in the church needs Jesus. And praise God, he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. There is no other leader like Jesus. We want people in our lives whose faith in Jesus draws us closer to him. We need leaders like that. So now, put it all together, and hopefully we're getting a different perspective on Hebrews 13 and 17. Obey your leaders, submit to their authority. That command starts to make sense. We start to realize how good it is for us when those leaders are doing what? They're teaching the word of God to us faithfully and continually. They're imitating the life of Jesus before us, helpfully and humbly. And then keep going to God's next description of them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So third and finally here, we need leaders who care for us responsibly and joyfully. It's an awesome image what God gives us here in his word. People who are keeping watch over your soul, caring for somebody's soul. Do you see God's kindness toward you and me here? Obviously, he is ultimately the one who keeps watch over our souls. But don't miss what he's saying here. God gives leaders in the church, in your life and my life, to keep watch over us as a reflection of his care for us. I think about times when we leave our kids at home with someone to care for them and how important it is that this person will watch over them responsibly. I've used the illustration before. Think of our five kids at home while we're still waiting to bring one home through adoption. Can you imagine us leaving our five kids in someone's care and then coming back home and there are only being three kids in the house. And Heather and I asked, uh, where are the other two? And the person entrusted with the care of our children says, I'm not sure where they are, but three out of five isn't bad, right? 60%, I mean, that'll get you through Major League Baseball, NBA, and the Hall of Fame, 60% is pretty good. And part of the reason I use this illustration is because up to this point, I'm guessing, as we've been talking about this, you've been thinking about leaders in the church, and specifically, what's come to your mind is pastors like myself or Mike or maybe location pastors, as you should, because we are obviously in leadership positions in the church. But this church has thousands of people who need care for their souls, and two or three or 10 or 20 Pastors can't do that responsibly before God, which is why one of the conclusions I hope you take away from this word today is we need a lot of leaders across this church. And God may be calling you to be one. This is why you hear us talking all the time about church groups, why we're 
moving and working to see every member of this church in a church group led by somebody or some people who are keeping watch over all of our souls, who are caring for our souls. That's why eventually we want as many of these church groups as possible to be led by a church group pastor. Not necessarily somebody who stands up here on stage and preaches to the whole church, but other leaders Pastors across the church who are saying, we're going to make sure we're caring for every single person's soul, which is why we take church membership seriously and all 12 traits of this church seriously, because I, we don't want to stand before God and say, we took care of 60% of them. That's pretty good, right? Or even 80 or 90%. No. And this is where you as a member of this church family can help leaders in this church family by saying, okay, if the leaders of my church before God are trying to care for my soul, trying to provide as biblical a church as possible for my good, then unless they're telling me to do something that goes against God's word, I will follow their leadership. I'll work to get into a church group. I'll Let go of this or that way of doing things that I've always done or this program that I love. If the people God has provided to care for my soul are leading me in a different way. I think about the invitation a couple of weeks ago to potentially move somewhere else in the world for the spread of the gospel. We have a process in place to help you discern if God is leading you in that way. And what that might look like. So it's helpful for you to say, unless they are leading me to go against God's word, I'll go through that process and follow their leadership. And let's just put it out there. This is so different than the way we are wired to think and work. We think and work like we're going to do this on our own, regardless of what somebody else says. But God is saying it is good for you to follow leaders in the church whom he has entrusted to teach God's word to you and to keep watch over your soul. Which means you need to be in a church where you can do this. In other words, if you're not willing to obey and submit to leadership in a particular church, you need to find a church where you can obey Hebrews 13, 17. You don't need to be in a church where you are disobeying God's word in Hebrews 13, 17. Which then leads to the last part of this verse and why I say not just responsibly, but joyfully, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So is this me saying to you, on my behalf, on behalf of other leaders in this church, it's time for you to make me, us, happy. It's in God's word. So do it. Well, in a sense, yes. But listen to the way the Bible talks about joy and happiness in church leaders. There are so many places in scripture. I I just started diving in. As I'm preparing for today, and there are so many different places I'd love to go, but we'd be here another hour that just depict the joyful relationship, relationship between leaders and members of a church. But my favorite one, I'll take you to one, is 3 John 1.4, where John is writing as a spiritual father to a church of spiritual children of his. And he says, I have no greater joy 
than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And that's it, right? They don't miss it. We all know this with physical children. If you have physical, it, doesn't it bring you great joy to see your children thrive? And so it's like, I'm a happy man. And my children are growing and thriving in this way or that way. And so in the church. I can totally testify to this verse right here. My greatest joy as a leader in this church family is seeing members of this church family grow in your relationship with Jesus. Without question, seeing you receive God's word and walk in obedience to it, seeing you share God's word and lead other people to Jesus. You want to make a church leader's day? Tell them how you share the gospel and somebody is now going to be in heaven for all of eternity as a result of their obedience to the word. Saying you care for each other. Think about circumstances right now in our church family, some really hard pictures of suffering and death and seeing brothers and sisters come alongside each other and walk with each other through that. Seeing you say a couple of weeks ago, God, I'll spread the gospel to unreached people no matter what it costs, and I'm going to explore what that looks like with total surrender in my heart. Seeing you take radical risks to follow Jesus in your workplace, in this city, among the nations. So now... It all makes sense. When leaders in the church are teaching the word of God and imitating the life of Jesus and keeping watch over people's souls and people in the church are obeying and submitting to that kind of leadership, there is much joy to be had by all. So God help us then. That's Hebrews 13, 18. Right after verse 17, the writer of Hebrews, a leader in the church says, pray for us. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. Pray for us. Pray for me, church. Pray for other leaders in this church that we would lead like Hebrews 13 and 1 Timothy 3 are describing. And pray that we as members of the church would follow leaders like this in ways that lead to their joy and our good and God's glory.
Now you can find all the programs of Heart and Soul Ministries on podcast. You can easily play this week or past week's programs, or you can even download them to your vice in only a few minutes. Try to search for Heart and Soul Gospel Ministries at your iTunes store now. following program is called Equipping the Saints. Hello, Heart and Soul listeners. I'm Pastor Greg Lundstedt, and I'm so glad that I can share my series from Equipping the Saints with you. I pray that God will grow each and every one of you in Christ through this series. But you, he's speaking to Timothy, followed my teaching, conduct, purpose, faith, patience, love, perseverance, persecutions, and sufferings, such as happened to me in Antioch, and Iconium, and Lystrum, what persecutions I endured, and out of them all the Lord delivered me. Praise the Lord. And indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. But notice this, verse 13. But... Evil men and imposters will proceed from bad to worse. In the last days, this is what's going to happen. This is what's going to happen. What did we see in 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1? There will be false teachers among you who will secretly introduce destructive heresies. The warnings are clear. But we are forgetful people. We forget how God warned his people in the Old Testament through the Holy Prophets. We forget how God warned his people through his holy apostles, commanded them in Christ through the Lord and say, we forget. We forget truth and we become vulnerable. It doesn't mean we focus on one truth to the exclusion of other truths. That's what people that aren't yielded to the Spirit do. It's a balanced understanding as you follow Jesus Christ. The warnings were clear. They're coming, they will arise. And certainly, it's within the context of the church. And I believe what we see here in chapter 3 is the same thing. Mockers will come. Folks, we need to remember God's word, and we need to be reminded because we are forgetful people. We are commanded in other places of Scripture not to forget the word of God. Turn to Proverbs chapter 3. We're commanded not to forget. Don't forget. Some things, if we forget them, can be very dangerous to our walk with Jesus. Just like when I fly. If I forget some things, some things don't matter as much. Some things can be life-threatening. We can't forget. Proverbs chapter 3, verse 1. My son, do not forget my teaching. Don't forget it. He's going to go on later and say, trust the Lord with all your heart. Don't lean on your own understanding. But you have to have the word in your heart before you can trust the Lord. We need to know who we're trusting in and what he said and standing on his promises. Don't forget my teaching. But let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace, they will add to you. Don't forget. We should be personally reminding ourselves of the word of God. We should. But not only that... We should be under faithful shepherds who are reminding us of the truth of God. 
You see, if you ever get to the point where you're tired of hearing your pastor say the same thing over and over again, you're in trouble. It is right for godly shepherds to remind the flock of the truth of God. The world and the church is always looking for a new thing or whatever it might be. The worldly church is looking for a new way to do things. But faithful shepherds consider it right to remind you of the word of truth, knowing that's what you are established in and grow within. Look at Romans 15, verse 15. The Apostle Paul kind of summarizes what he's written in the book of Romans. Romans 15, 15. But I have written very boldly to you on some points, so as to remind you again. So as to remind you again because of the grace of God that was given me from God. We saw already back in Second Peter chapter 1 that he considered it right to remind them of those things, to stir them up by way of reminder. Forgetting God's truth is a dangerous thing. One last turn back to Deuteronomy. I want to read something in Deuteronomy chapter 8. Forgetfulness is evidenced by a lack of obedience, by the way, as we'll say. Deuteronomy chapter 8. I'd love to read the whole thing, but I'm just going to read part of it. Deuteronomy chapter 8. And by the way, there are parallels from Israel's physical experience to our spiritual experience, by the way. They're not exact, but there are parallels to their being delivered physically and redeemed and then ransomed and given a good land going into that and being blessed in the relationship with the living God. Deuteronomy chapter 8, verse 6, Therefore you shall keep the commandments of the Lord your God to walk in his ways and to fear him. For the Lord your God is bringing you into a good land, a land of brooks and water and fountains and springs, flowing forth of valleys and hills, a land of wheat and barley and vines and fig trees and pomegranates, a land of olive oil and honey, a land where you shall eat food without scarcity in which you shall lack nothing, and a land in which stones are iron, and out of those hills you can dig copper. When you have eaten and are satisfied, you shall bless the Lord your God for the good land which he has given you. God is going to bless you, physically speaking, with Israel. Now, he's blessed us spiritually speaking, hasn't he? But notice what he says. Beware lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his ordinance and his statutes, which I am commanding you today. Beware lest you forget. And he goes on. He goes on. There's a lot. You can read it later that your heart would become proud of verse 14, that you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. By the way, if you're a true believer, we can forget, practically speaking, our redemption in Christ. We can forget that on a daily basis. We can forget, ultimately, our relationship with Jesus. We can just move on our own ways throughout the day. Beware lest you forget. The Apostle Paul would share in Philippians chapter 3, verse 1, I consider it right to remind you of these things. It's a safeguard. And that was concerning false teachers. Finally, brethren, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things again is no trouble to me, and it is a safeguard for you. We should be in a place, brothers and sisters, where we are reminded personally in our own Bible study and by faithful shepherds who remind us of the Word of God, Old and New Testament, We need to heed the warnings that God gives seriously that we would not be taken and carried away by the air of unprincipled men and fall from our own steadfastness. Back to 2 Peter 3. Peter is stirring up them sincere minds by way of reminder. 
He's reminding them. And he's reminding them knowing that something will happen. Look at verse 3. Actually, I'm going to read into it again from verse 1. This is now, beloved, the second letter I'm writing to you in which I'm stirring up your sincere mind by way of reminder so that you should remember the words spoken beforehand by the holy prophets and the commandment of the Lord and Savior spoken by your apostles. And remember, verse 3 starts with this word, literally knowing. I think the New King James translates it that way. It's a good translation. Knowing, remember these things, knowing this first of all, that in the last days... Mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lust. The context of Second Peter is the false teachers. Men will arise. That's what he's talking about. If you were with us in chapter 2, you saw exactly what he's talking about. Knowing this, first of all, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. He says, in the last days. What does he mean by that? Last days. Well, we might remember his first letter. He revealed that Jesus Christ, having been foreknown before the foundation of the world, has been manifested in these last times. The last days began when Christ came and died for our sins. The last days. He says in 1 Peter 4, 7, the end of all things has come at hand or drawn near. It's here. What's come near? Well, we know in 1 Peter chapter 4, right before that, he says, those who are walking in sin, following their own desires, shall give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Turn to James 5. You see, we're in the last days because Jesus could come at any minute again and bring about, first of all, the removal of his church, and secondly, judgment upon this earth. He could come at any time. But he's patient, not willing for any to perish. That's why he hasn't come. But mockers will mock the truth in relationship to his judgment. They're going to mock that. Oh, don't worry about that. Everything's going the way it's been going. Nothing's happened. But it escapes their notice that things have happened already by God's word, and it will happen by his word. Look at James chapter 5, verse 8. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts. They were suffering. They were suffering. Believers suffer, by the way. For the coming of the Lord is at hand. It's just right around the corner. It can happen anytime. The only thing stopping it is he's patient and saving people. But the day is going to come. He says, do not complain, brethren, against one another. Hey, let's listen to that, folks. Do not complain against one another that yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. The picture, he's right there, ready to open the door and bring judgment. It's going to happen. Turn to Romans chapter 13. We are living in the last days. We are living in the last days. We are in the end times. Romans 13. And guess what? In the end times, mockers will come. They're going to come. Romans 13, verse 11. And do this, knowing the time. you got to know the time, believer. Know the time. Know the time. That it is already the hour for you to waken from sleep. Wake up! For now, salvation is nearer to us than when we believe. When you came to faith, your ultimate glorification is closer now than it was when you came to faith. The culmination of our salvation, it is close. And he says here, The night is almost gone. The day of sin and darkness 
and wickedness, brothers and sisters. The only way that will be completely gone is when Jesus judges. But he's patient. He's waiting. He says, and the day is at hand. Let us therefore lay aside the deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. Scripture is clear about the imminence of Jesus' return. The last days here, the grace of God came first in the appearance of Christ when Christ came and took our sins in his body on the cross. But he will come again. He will come in glory to judge. He will remove his church first. We're not destined for wrath. But he will come again and judge. The night is almost gone. And we as believers, we look forward to a new heavens and new earth where righteousness dwells. Not all this sin and all this yuck. We can't wait till our sinful bodies of flesh are glorified. We're in the last days. But what's going to happen in the last days? He says, in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. And why hasn't Jesus come yet? I refer to it, and we'll see it next time, Lord willing. He is not willing for any to perish, but patient towards you. That he wants us all to come to repentance. He's a gracious God. But that day will come. So then, back in our passage, let's finish up in the beginning of verse 3. Knowing this first of all, that in the last days mockers will come with their mocking, following after their own lusts. The term mocker is an interesting term, empazio. It's a combination of en, which means in, and piazzo, which speaks of playing like a child. It speaks of making fun of one another. It's one who derides another person or thing. It's a mocking. It actually was translated tricked concerning the magi in Herod back in Matthew chapter 2. Or outwitted. These evil false teachers will mock the word of God. They're going to mock the truth of God more specifically about his coming, more specifically which relates to his judgment on sin and sinners. These evil false teachers will mock Underlying the term mocking, same word that was used when they mocked Jesus, the soldiers, is a rebellion against God and against his word, a lack of submission. So what's Peter saying? He wants to stir us up our sincere minds by reminding them what was already spoken by the holy prophets and the apostles from Christ Jesus, that command, concerning bad guys, knowing they're going to come in the last days. And then the rest of this chapter, not all of it, is an example specifically of what it might look like and specifically what they might have seen at that time. We've seen in chapter 2, first of all, their motives underneath. We've seen how they do things. But here is an example of them actually deriding the Word of God, following after their own lusts. Remember we saw in chapter 2, many will follow their sensuality about the bad guys. Chapter 2, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. Chapter 2, verse 10, they indulge in the flesh and its corrupt desires. Chapter 2, middle of verse 13, they count it pleasure to revel in the daytime, their stains and blemishes, reveling in their deceptions, having eyes full of adultery that never cease from sin, enticing unstable souls, having a heart trained in greed, accursed children. They're falling after their own lusts. Chapter 2, verse 18, speaking out arrogant words of vanity enticed by fleshly desires, by sensuality, those who barely escape, the ones living in error, promising them freedom while they themselves are slaves to corruption. They promise you freedom in Jesus, but they put you in bondage because they don't give you what you need, which is the Word of God. And here, they're going to mock, following after their own lusts. 
And we'll look at this next time, but notice what they say. They contradict the word of God. Verse 4, saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all continues just as it was from the beginning of creation. Guess what? They believe in the Jewish fathers, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. They believe in creation. Probably these might be Jewish false prophets here. Where is the promise of his coming? Where's the promise? You see, what they're doing is they're mocking the word of God. They're mocking the truth of God. They're mocking God. And they're going to come. And next week we're going to see more in depth that Christ's coming in judgment is throughout the word of God that he will come. But he is patient, not willing for any to perish. Notice how they justify their mocking of the word of God. They use what you can see and observe to try and pull you after your own desires. Look around. God hasn't done anything yet. It's all the same. Implying he's not going to do anything. Like the Old Testament false prophets, peace and safety. God's not going to judge you. You're good to go. You can send it up. They don't say that, but that's what they mean. Where is the promise of his coming? Well, we'll look at a lot more passages next time, but I just want to share two specific passages and then we'll finish up. Look at Isaiah chapter 13, verse 6, and you'll see the promise of his coming in relationship to judgment. Isaiah 13, verse 6. Where is the promise? Well, it's in the Word of God. And Peter wants you to remember it because they're going to try to point you away from it to what you experience. Where's the promise? Well, it's in the Word of God. That's the answer. But they're trying to point you to what you can observe. That's how they do it. Isaiah 13, 6. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Therefore, all hands will fall limp. Every man's heart will melt, and they will be terrified. Pains and anguish will take hold of them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look at one another in astonishment, their faces aflame. Behold, the day of the Lord is coming cruel with fury and burning anger to make the land a desolation and he will exterminate its sinners from it. It's going to come. For the stars of the heaven, the constellations will not flash forth their light. The sun will be dark when it rises and the moon will not shed its light. Thus I will punish the world for its evil. Hey, he's not punishing the world yet. He's patient, not willing for any to perish. But the day will come. The false guys, it's not going to happen. You can live your life the way you want. Look at the way it is. It's okay. No, it's going to come. Thus I will punish the world for its evil and the wicked for their iniquity, and I will put an end to the arrogance of the proud and abase the haughtiness of the ruthless. I will make mortal man scarcer than pure gold and mankind than the gold of Ophar. Therefore I shall make the heavens tremble and the earth shall be shaken from its place at the fury of the Lord of hosts in the day of his burning anger. Where is the promise of his coming? Peter says, the Holy Prophet spoke about it. You need to listen. Bad guys are coming. Be in the word of God. And the apostles spoke about it too. One last passage. Turn to 2 Thessalonians. We have been saved from God's tremendous wrath. And therefore we should live differently. False teachers want you to forget about that. They lessen it. They delete it. They mock it. They don't talk about sin and God's wrath. They talk about what you can observe. But that's not the truth. Second Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.6 
For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Notice what the language here. Dealing out retribution to those who do not know God, to those who do not obey the gospel. God commands you to repent and believe, by the way, and if you don't obey it, you're in trouble. Obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, and these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled among all who have believed, for our testimony to you was believed. Where is the promise of his coming? It's in Scripture. Old and New Testament. Don't forget it. Don't forget it. Don't let people tell you something differently. They willfully overlook the reality that God has judged previously, and they mock the Word of God. Tempt you to walk by sight, by your feelings, by what you can see and observe, not by what God has said in His Word. We walk by faith, not by sight, brothers and sisters. There's a lot more here, but we've got to stop. What can we learn? How can we be protected from being tripped up by false teachers. First of all, we need to allow our sincere minds to be reminded of what God has said in the Old Testament and the New Testament, what he has said in his word concerning the warnings of these people, concerning what they might do and how they would do it. And secondly, we need to recognize in the last days, mockers will come with their mocking. They will point you to what you can see and observe rather than what God has said in his word. Stay in his word. Be reminded of his word personally and corporately that you and I would be protected from these threats which will arise. Think of any family. A good father, a good parent would warn their children of the things that could hurt them one who loves their children, and we are beloved by God, and he is warning us because he loves us. Beloved, remember these things. Standing on the promises of Christ my King, through eternal ages let his praises ring Glory in the highest I will shout and sing Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God my Savior Standing, standing I'm standing on the promises of God On the promises that cannot fail When the howling storms of doubt and fear assail By the living word of God I shall prevail Standing on the promises of God Standing, standing Standing on the promises of God My Savior standing, standing Standing on the promises of God 
Standing on the promises I cannot fall Listening every moment to the Spirit's call Resting in my Savior as my all in all Standing on the promises of God Standing on the promises Standing on the promises of God my Savior Standing, standing I'm standing on the promises of God We are now ending our Unity in Christ broadcast. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.